So Galatians 2, beginning at verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who have reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised, also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. What would you think if somebody came up behind this pulpit and started sharing and saying, you know, I've come here this morning to tell you about Jesus and to preach to you the gospel of Jesus. And we all love Jesus, don't we? And he goes on and he says that, but then he he goes on and he says, but you know, I've got a real problem with that Apostle Paul. And Jesus I love, and his message, and the message of the 12 apostles, for that matter, oh, I love it. But that Paul, he's a troublemaker. I don't really agree with Paul in his message. Did you know, by the way, that there are some people in the world today who have that kind of teaching? They'll say, oh, yes, we're all into Jesus, but not the Apostle Paul. We have a big problem with the Apostle Paul. Well, that's exactly the message that was going forth to these churches in Galatia. Now, if you notice, I said the churches of Galatia, because Galatia wasn't a city, it was a region. And this letter was written to several churches in several different cities in this region of Galatia. And false teachers had come in there, and they had tried to say, listen, we love Jesus. We love the message from the 12 disciples. But you, Paul, we got a problem with you. We don't like your message. And so in this section of his letter to the Galatians, Paul is really walking a tightrope trying to prove two things without falling off an edge on either one. The first thing he's trying to prove is the apostles in Jerusalem agree with my gospel. In other words, you can't go around saying, listen, uh, we like uh, the apostles in Jerusalem, but we don't like Paul because Paul wants to make it very clear. We're preaching the same gospel. You reject me. You reject my gospel. You're really rejecting Jesus and his gospel and the gospel of the 12 disciples. But the other thing that Paul's trying to do, and again, he's walking a tightrope. He doesn't want to fall off on either side. Paul also wants to establish that he was not overly influenced by the apostles in Jerusalem because Paul wants to make it clear that he received his gospel straight from Jesus Christ. Paul was unique in that regard, don't you think? 
I mean, the normal way, if you want to put it that way, for God's gospel to get out into this world is for people to share it one by one or somebody to speak to a group like this and for them to hear the message of the gospel. But Paul was unusual in that regard because Jesus came and spoke the message to him directly. And Paul wanted to know, wanted people to know that so that they would know that his gospel wasn't from man, but it was from God. So here's Paul. He's walking the tightrope. He doesn't want to fall off on either side. Yes, he's in agreement with all of the uh, 12 apostles, but no, he didn't get his gospel from them. And that's the issue he's dealing with. Now, if you notice it, he builds it around the story of when he went to Jerusalem. Notice it here, verse 1, chapter 2. He says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. That's interesting, first of all, that he mentions the 14 years. Now, two visits to Jerusalem in 14 years. Does that sound like a lot? No, that's not a lot at all. And Paul is showing two things by that. First of all, he was not overly dependent upon the apostles in Jerusalem, was he? No. Seeing them two times in 14 years, it's not like Paul's exactly sitting at their feet and getting all of his spiritual knowledge, all of his message from them. No. He got it straight from Jesus Christ. But there's also something else very interesting about that. Paul grew up as a good Jewish man. He grew up as a Pharisee one of the elite spiritual people in Israel. That was Paul, or should we say Saul, because that was his given name that he used most commonly. By the way, so many things pop into my mind as I teach here. Isn't it interesting? Paul had two names, Saul and Paul. And he had those names all throughout his birth and his life. But when he ministered mainly to the Gentiles, he took the word, the name Paul, because that was his Roman name. And when he ministered mainly to Jewish people, he used the word, the name Saul, because that was his uh, more Jewish name. Now, anyway, this man, Paul, who is also named Saul, he only visited Jerusalem a couple times in these 14 years. But he was a good Jewish man. And a good Jewish man would go to Jerusalem... Three times a year for the yearly feast. And Paul's saying, I didn't obey the ceremonial rituals. I did not go up and keep the feast the way that other people would. He only went there twice in 14 years. So notice it. That's the first thing that's interesting to me in verse 1, the 14 years. Notice the second thing. Who are his traveling companions? Barnabas and Titus. Now, what's fascinating for me is that when you study the Bible and start comparing Scripture to Scripture, you see that one place in the Bible will be referred to or mentioned in another place in the Bible. And do you want to see in the book of Acts where it mentions this trip to Jerusalem that Paul took? Well, I don't even know if you want to, but I'm going there. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. Keep your finger there in Galatians 2 because we're going back there. Acts chapter 11. Check it out, beginning at verse 27. It says, And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now, Antioch was the church where Paul was serving as a pastor. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. Isn't that exciting? I mean, a prophet comes and he declares, and we don't know exactly how he declared it. Maybe he just came up to the leadership of the church after the servants said, listen, I need to tell you the message that God's put on my heart. Here it is. But when they got that message, they responded that there's going to be a famine. 
The Christians in Jerusalem are going to be especially hard hit. We need to help them. And so what did they do? They took up a collection. They took an offering and they said, we got to get this to Jerusalem to help the saints there. And who did they send it by? Look at verse 30. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. That's the visit that Paul mentions here in Galatians chapter 2. So here, Paul comes, and who does he bring with him? Well, Barnabas came with him, but unmentioned in Acts, but mentioned in Galatians chapter 2, verse 1, Titus came with him. Now, think of these two traveling companions of Paul, Barnabas and Titus. Barnabas was a man who grew up as a Jewish man, and he was a neat guy. You would have loved to meet Barnabas. He was given a nickname. The nickname was Son of Encouragement. That means he was such an encouraging guy. You know, in Hebrew kind of speaking, if somebody is really characterized by a quality, you call them the son of that quality. And so Barnabas was such an encouraging man that they called him the son of encouragement. We would probably call him Mr. Encouragement. Here comes Mr. Encouragement, man. And that's the kind of man Barnabas was. I know some people who are like Barnabas, don't you? You just love to be around them. They're like a Mr. Encouragement. So that's Barnabas on one side of Paul. Who's on the other side of Paul as he walks into Jerusalem? Titus. Now, what's significant about Titus? Well, two things. First of all, he was a very valued associate of the Apostle Paul. You know that he's got a letter written to him, right? You got 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, and then you got the book of Titus, which was written to the same man. And Titus is a man who's praised by Paul over and over in the Bible. In 2 Corinthians especially, Paul calls Titus his brother. He says that he was comforted by the coming of Titus. He says that that Titus has the same earnest care in his heart that was in the heart of Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he says, If anyone inquires about Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker concerning you. Wouldn't you love it if Paul said things like that about you? And then in Titus chapter 1 verse 4, Paul calls Titus a true son in our common faith. Man, that'd be exciting if if the Apostle Paul said that about you. And so Titus was a remarkable man. You should go home and, well, you know how I do it? I do it on the computer. Do you have a personal computer at home and like a Bible software on there? Just type in a word search for that name Titus and look at all the places where it comes up and you'll see what kind of remarkable man for God this man Titus was. And do you know that you can be a remarkable person for Jesus Christ too? You really can. Sometimes we read about the people in the Bible and we feel like, well, they must have been people who walked on another planet, lived in a different world. Oh, they're so far from the kind of people that you and I are. No, God can make you a remarkable person for Jesus Christ as well. You say, well, you don't know. You know, I I have a job. I can't go and I can't travel around with Paul like Titus did. No, right where you're at in the things that God has given to you do in daily life, God can use you in a remarkable way and make you a remarkable man or a remarkable woman for Jesus Christ. I think a lot of times we just set our sights too low in our Christian life, don't we? We sort of uh, accustom ourselves and satisfy ourselves with mediocrity. God wants to lift you up higher. And make you a great man, a great woman for Jesus Christ. And Titus was just that kind of person. Now the other thing I think is remarkable about Titus is that he was a Gentile. He was not Jewish. Now you and I say, so what? I mean, most believers you know today are Gentiles. They don't come from a Jewish family, from a Jewish background. I mean, you think of most people in our church family. They're not from Jewish heritage. 
Praise God, God's given us some sons and daughters of Israel here in our midst, and we thank God for them, but most of us, well, we're, we're Gentiles. We say, so what? Titus was a Gentile. But you should know that back then, in the days that Paul was writing the letter to the Galatians, this was a hot issue. There were many people in the church in that day who said that if you were a Gentile, you couldn't really be a Christian. You know what they said? They said, oh, you're a Gentile? You want to come to Jesus? Fine. You have to become a Jew first. You're a Gentile, become a Jew, and then you can become a Christian. And that was the teaching that many people had in the church. And this is the kind of people that Paul is dealing with. And so think of how that would be. Oh, okay, you're a Gentile. You want to become a Christian? Well, you have to become a Jewish man first. And you have to put yourself under the law of Moses. And how does that begin for a man? You have to be circumcised. Now, in those days, they didn't circumcise people. They didn't circumcise men. That's the cutting away of the male foreskin. They did not do it as a matter of of medicinal things or hygiene. If you were circumcised, it was almost certain that you were Jewish. If you were not circumcised, it was almost certain that you were not Jewish. And so for a man to come under the law of Moses, a Gentile man, the first thing that would have to do, the first thing for his initiation, he would have to be circumcised as an adult. And so do you see what would happen? When there were these people in the church teaching that a Gentile has to become a Jew before he can become a Christian, they'd say to all the Gentile men, okay, you want to come to Jesus Christ? Fine, fine. You have to become a Jew, put yourself under the law of Moses, and be circumcised first. Then you can come to Jesus. That would cut down on the response at an altar call. I'm telling you that right now. (laughs) But friends, it wasn't just about circumcision. That was just the initiation. It was putting yourself under the whole law of Moses. And Paul's dealing with this. There's a group of people in the church who are teaching this. They'd come up to a Gentile and say, oh, we love you. We want you to come to Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. Please come to Jesus. Say, I want to come to Jesus. Great. Come to Moses first. Then you can come to Jesus. So do you see how It was a big deal for Paul to walk into Jerusalem where he knows many people are teaching this doctrine. On one side of him is Barnabas. Everybody likes Barnabas, son of encouragement. On the other side of him, Titus. Say, Titus, you're a nice guy. But there were some Christians in Jerusalem who would look at Titus and say, we don't even think you're saved because you're not circumcised. You haven't put yourself under the law of Moses. And Paul says, you know what, I don't care. I'm bringing Titus with me. Let's bring this issue to a head. Let's cover it right now. So he walks into Jerusalem. He meets with the Christians. Here's Barnabas. Here's Titus. And it would raise questions. I can just imagine Paul going and he's delivering the gift that he was bringing in Acts chapter 11. Remember, he was bringing contribution. And he comes and he brings it to the apostles. And he says, I know that there's this dispute going around. Let me tell you, the 12 apostles the 12 disciples of Jesus, let me tell you the message that I am preaching to the Gentiles. And that's what he says in verse 2. Look it out here. He says, and I went up by revelation. In other words, God told them to go to Jerusalem. I went up by revelation and communicated to them the gospel, which I preach among the Gentiles. Paul says, I want you men to know exactly what I'm preaching. And you know what they responded with? They said, that's the gospel. That's the message we preach. In other words, they were in total agreement. 
the apostles in Jerusalem checked out Paul's message, and they agreed with it. They said, isn't this beautiful? Isn't this wonderful? You're preaching the same gospel we're preaching. But do you see how this could have been a potentially uh, very contentious issue? Paul didn't know. Maybe some of the apostles believed this funny way. He didn't know for sure. So what did he do? Look at it there in verse 2. This is fascinating. He says, I went up by revelation and communicated to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who are of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. When Paul met with these, I'm going to use kind of a funny term, these big shots among the Christians, right? When he met with them, he met with them privately. Because if there was going to be a conflict, Paul wanted it to be a private conflict. Isn't he wise? Praise God for the wisdom of the Apostle Paul. You know, you know some people would go in there guns blazing. Man, I know I'm right, and they're wrong. And I don't care who disagrees with me, I'll get in their face publicly. Paul didn't think that way. Paul knew something that, well, I wish I knew it all the time. Paul knew that being right didn't give him the privilege of being rude. And so he did it in the proper way. Isn't that a glorious truth to come to? Being right doesn't give you the permission to be rude. And so he comes in there and he does it privately so that nothing is compromised. But the end of the issue was the same. Look at verses 3 through 5. It's heavy here. He goes, Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Man, do you get the feeling of what Paul's saying here? The hair is like up on the back of his neck, right? I mean, when he's writing this, the pen is really hard down on the page. I'll tell you something interesting from from the original text of this, from the Greek text, which Paul wrote. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar at all, but I can read the writings of people who are Greek scholars. and, And those who are Greek scholars will say that Paul's grammar in these three verses, verses three, four, and five, it's really poor grammar. It's like he's so worked up, he's not even using proper grammar. It's like he's saying, there ain't no way that they're going to move me from this. Because he's really determined. I I mean, look at him here. He says it in verse 3. He says, yet not even Titus who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. There were people who wanted Titus to be circumcised. They were saying he couldn't be a Christian unless he was brought under the law of Moses. But Paul says, no way. No way. It's not going to happen. It's not that there's nothing wrong. If somebody wants to be circumcised, fine. But nobody is going to tell Titus that he can't be saved unless he's circumcised. No way at all. And who are the people bringing in this teaching? Did you notice it here in verse 4? But this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in. Wow. You know, we don't want to think of that, do we? We don't want to think about false brethren. That's a heavy title. I can almost guarantee you something. That these men who were the false brethren, they did not think of themselves as false brethren. They thought of themselves as the true brethren. But because they opposed and contradicted the gospel revealed to Paul by Jesus Christ, they really were false brethren according to the standard of the gospel. Friends, this isn't some side issue. 
This isn't about, well, should we sing uh, this kind of song or that kind of song? Should we do this in church or that in church? Should we meet on this day or that day? No, no. This is a pivotal issue. How is a person saved? Are they saved by the work of Jesus Christ? Or are they saved by the work of Jesus Christ plus surrendering to the Mosaic law? What is it? So Paul says, these are false brethren. It's also significant that Paul says in verse 4 that they were secretly brought in. And then he also goes on and says that they came in by stealth. You heard of the stealth fighter? You know, it comes in below the radar and it can't be detected. That's how these brethren came in. The radar of many Christians was not picking these brethren up. They made sense to a lot of people. They'd open up the Bible and say, well, see here where it talks about circumcision. That means you, my Gentile brother, you need to be circumcised. You need to come under the law of Moses. But Paul's saying, no way. They came in secretly. They didn't come in with name badges that said false brother. You know, you wouldn't greet them at the greeting time in church and say, hi, I'm a false brother. I've come in to spy out your liberty in Jesus and to bring you into bondage. No, no, no. You know, these men probably had the best of intentions, but they were still dangerous men that had to be confronted. And I think it's significant what else Paul says in verse 4. Now, sometimes it's the little words of the Bible that I get the most excited about. Look at what he says here. That they might, he says at the end of verse 4, that they might bring us into bondage. What do you mean us, Paul? You're Jewish. Barnabas is Jewish. It's just Titus who's a Gentile. But Paul says, no, they want to bring us into bondage. Don't you think it would have been easy for Paul to say to Titus, listen, Titus, man, this is your problem. I am circumcised. I am a Jewish man. So is Barnabas. You got to work this out with these guys because, you know, it doesn't affect me. It's your problem. Paul says, no, you got a problem with my brother Titus, you got a problem with me. It's our problem. You're trying to take away my liberty also. Paul realized that if the message of the gospel is compromised, it isn't just bondage for the Gentiles, but it's bondage for everyone who names the name of Jesus. And that's the perspective Paul's coming from. And so if you notice here in verse 5, wow, did you see this? He says, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour. Paul's being kind of stubborn there, isn't he? And praise God for it. You know, I think one of the great marks of a man of God like Paul was that he knew when to be stubborn and when not to be stubborn. I think some of us need to be more stubborn at the right times. And others of us, well, you know, our stubbornness is just all about pride. It's all about the flesh. It's all about us. Friends, you know, isn't it important that we learn how to be stubborn about the right things? Praise God that Paul dug in his heels here and was stubborn and said, we're not going to yield submission to this even for an hour, even for a moment. No way. Friends, it's so important that we don't give in to a fleshly stubbornness. It's very easy to do, right? Sometimes we just excuse it. Well, I'm just a stubborn person. Well, well, you are, and Jesus Christ wants to change that. And friends, we just don't give in to it. Not that fleshly stubbornness, but praise God for stubbornness about the right things. 
Praise God that, that a man like Paul would dig in his heels at the right time. Praise God for, for martyrs through the centuries who would dig in their heels and they were asked to deny Jesus Christ and would even go to the stake and be burnt for the cause of the gospel, being stubborn about the right things. Praise God for a man like Martin Luther, who 500 years ago stood for the cause of the gospel and said, we're going to stand firm and we're not going to be moved from that. You know, one of the commentaries I'm reading through the book of Galatians was written by Martin Luther, and it's, it's exciting to read. This is what he says on this passage about stubbornness and applying it to himself. He says, therefore, God assisting me, my forehead shall be more hard than all men's foreheads. Yes, I'm glad, even with all my heart, in this point to seem rebellious and obstinate, and here I confess that I am and ever will be. Man. He says, I thank God that my forehead is more hard than anybody else's forehead when it comes to a matter that you should be stubborn about. Praise God for that. May God give every one of us the grace and the wisdom to be stubborn about the right things. You know what I think is very interesting about this whole occasion? Paul had two great young Gentile associates. One of them was Titus, right? You know who the other one was? Timothy. He wrote letters to him, right? First and second Timothy and Titus. Paul had these two great young Gentile associates. Now, Timothy grew up as a Gentile, even though his mother was Jewish, but his father was a Gentile, so he grew up. And you want to know something interesting? Paul had Timothy circumcised, but he did not have Titus circumcised. Isn't that interesting? You say, man, why? Was he just mad at Timothy or something? What's that all about? No, 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 not at all. Do you know why Paul had Timothy circumcised? Out of love for offended brothers. That's why he did it. Paul would reach out in love so that no offense would be given for the cause of the gospel and say to Timothy, bro, I think you should be circumcised. I think you should do this for the cause of love and the sake of the gospel. And Timothy said, okay, let's do it. But for the sake of not compromising on the gospel, Paul would say, there's no way that Titus is going to be circumcised. And isn't it interesting that Paul would give up for love what he would never give up out of the sake for compromising the gospel. Martin Luther put it this way. Again, I'm quoting from his commentary. He says, if they had asked for it on the plea of brotherly love, Paul would not have denied them. But because they demanded it, on the ground that it was necessary for salvation, Paul defied them and prevailed. Titus was not circumcised. Friends, isn't it a beautiful thing that we can do out of love what we won't do for other occasions? But Paul would not stand on, or would not budge from this point because the gospel was at stake. And so he kind of summarizes his point here in verse 6 where he says, But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me, God shows personal favoritism to no man, for those who seem to be something added nothing to me. You see Paul walking the tightrope? He wants everybody to know that they approved of his, of his gospel in Jerusalem. On the other hand, he's saying, they didn't add anything to me. They did not give me my gospel. It came from Jesus, but they approved of it. So we're on the same page, but we each received it directly from Jesus Christ. And I think there's such an important principle that Paul lays out there in verse 6, where he says, for those who seem to be something added nothing to me. Sometimes we think, 
that people who are something will add something to us spiritually. Now, please, I'm not talking about the normal way that God ministers to us through teaching and through love and through, you know, just the wonderful things that he gives. I think I'm talking about kind of the weird spiritual way that we think about it. You know, that that somehow they'll give us some unique anointing or some unique gift or some unique power just from being with somebody or, or expecting somebody else to make our Christian life. If I'm not explaining it very well, let, let me illustrate it by kind of an embarrassing story from my own life. About 15 years ago, Ingalil and I went up to a wonderful conference, uh, and, and there were three of just about my favorite teachers present at that conference. It was a special conference, maybe only 100 or so pastors and their wives there. And, and the first guy there was Don McClure, Calvary Chapel pastor. I just love Don McClure. He's a great man of God. I love his teaching. The other guy there was Chuck Smith, Pastor Chuck. He just loved the way he teaches and ministers the Word of God. But the third guy there was somebody really special, a man named Alan Redpath. Oh, and being there with Alan Redpath. Now, you may not know his name, but you've been blessed by Alan Redpath's ministry because I steal from him all the time. (laughs) He's written some great commentaries. I mean, on the life of David, his work, The Making of a Man of God, On Joshua, oh, I could just go through and talk about Alan Redpath. He was not only a great Bible teacher, but just being around him, a great man of God. I mean, he just, you just, you just knew that this man walked with Jesus. And oh, to go up and be at a conference with Alan Redpath and Chuck Smith and Don McClure, oh, I couldn't pass it up. So Angelo and I went. 15 years ago, I was about 12 years old. No, no, no. I was older than that, but I was pretty young. And I would say I, I was still pretty dumb in a lot of ways. So uh, I went up there, and, and we're there at the conference. And, you know, kind of in my own foolish way, I, I wanted Alan Redpath to add something to me. You know, like Paul says here, I wanted some special blessing from Alan Redpath. I wanted to go up to him and, and for him to say something like, you know, there's something about you, young man, that really strikes me in my heart. Or, you know, I've been looking for somebody to, to be a disciple of mine. Won't you come? And, you know, something like that. Just, just the foolish thoughts of a young man. So after one of the times when he taught and he had just finished this marvelous, marvelous teaching, he's sitting in one of the seats, and I thought, I'll go up and I'll have my audience with Alan Redpath, you know. So I went up, and as I'm walking up, I'm thinking, well, how am I going to address him, you know? And I, what sounds right? And I decided on Dr. Redpath. I thought that sounded good. So I go and I said, Dr. Redpath, I just want to know if you had a word to, to say to a, uh, a young man in the ministry like myself. I, I just wondered if you had a piece of advice for me. It sounds like a very spiritual question to ask, doesn't it? Of course, that's what I was shooting for. I wanted to sound very spiritual to this man. You know, and I'm waiting for him to add something. I'm waiting for him just to say, you know, and he added something, all right, but not what I was expecting. He said... He paused for a moment, you know, just that, thinking, probably thinking, this poor kid's got a lot to learn. And he says, well, I would have thought that what I just shared in the message would really have something to say to your heart. And as soon as he said that, I said, oh, I feel like such a jerk. 
I mean, he was so right. He had just got done teaching a marvelous, marvelous session on how to be used of God and how to go deeper with the Lord. And there I am asking for a word of advice. Well, you know what? He, he didn't add anything to me in the same way that Paul's saying here. I went up looking for him to bestow some special blessing, bestow some special thing upon me. And no, no. God wanted to build those special things in my life and in my ministry himself. And so I could learn from Alan Redpath. I could learn from Chuck Smith and Don McClure. Glorious, glorious things. But I I think every one of us are going to say the same thing that Paul says. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. Friends, are you waiting for somebody else to make your Christian life? It's not going to happen. Are you waiting for somebody else to to wave a magic wand or to lead you in some great experience or to do something like that? It's not going to happen. It's between you and the Lord. And God has beautiful things to give you through your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. But the foundation of your walk needs to be your personal relationship with Him. May everyone here say that those who seem to be something added nothing to me. No, I have my own walk with Jesus Christ. And God has used many to bless me, but the foundation of it is my walk with him. Let's finish it up here with verses 7 through 10. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me towards the Gentiles. You know what Paul's saying there? He's saying, God gave me an emphasis of ministry on the Gentiles. And God gave Paul, excuse me, God gave Peter an emphasis of ministry on the Jews. Fine. They each have their emphasis of ministry. Now, this wasn't an absolute thing. Paul wouldn't stand before a crowd like this and say, now, if there are any Jewish people present here, you must leave the room. God's given me a ministry to the Gentiles. No, no, no. It wasn't some exclusive thing like that. It was just a matter of emphasis. Paul emphasized the Gentiles in his ministry. Peter emphasized the Jewish people in his ministry. And so just as much as as Paul was called, Peter was called, and it was all great together. But notice this in verses 9 and 10. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and to the circumcised. And they desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I was also eager to do. Do you get the point there? They checked out our gospel. They checked out our message. And they gave us the right hand of fellowship. So, hey, you false teachers in the Galatian church, you ones who are saying, we love Jesus. We love Peter. It's just that Paul guy. We don't like his message. You don't get it because they have the same message. They gave him the right hand of fellowship there in Jerusalem. They heard all about his ministry, all that he's doing. And it's one gospel, one message. Friends, they agreed about it. And the gospel is one message for everybody. And isn't that a glorious truth? Do you realize how wonderful that is? There's not one gospel for the young and another gospel for the old. There's not one gospel for the rich and another gospel for the poor. There's not one gospel for the goody two-shoes and another gospel for the down and out. There's not one gospel for the smart and another gospel for the the not-so-smart. There's not one gospel for this race and another gospel for that race. It's one gospel for everybody. And isn't that glorious? 
It means that everybody can come to Jesus. I mean, think if the gospel was, well, think if it was really complicated, like an elaborate mathematical equation, and only the smart people could come to Jesus. Well, sorry, all you dumb people, you're going to hell. That's all there is to it, right? The gospel is really complicated. Only the smart people can come to Jesus. No, it's one gospel for everybody. Or think about if, if it costs you money, you know, like Scientology. You've got to keep shelling out the money, shelling out the money to sort of find your place of peace. Well, then all the rich people, you have a chance of salvation. All you poor people, sorry, you're going to hell. Isn't it glorious? It's one gospel for everybody. It's one gospel for you and you and you and everybody here. We all have the same reason to come to Jesus Christ. We're all sinners. We could go around with the measuring stick and try to see who's a worse sinner than anybody else. What's the point of that? We're all sinners before a holy God. And our debt of sin makes us guilty before God. But out of love, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to come and die on the cross. And when He hung on the cross, He bore the guilt and the penalty of sin that we deserve. It should have been us on that cross, shouldn't it? But it wasn't us. Jesus died in our place. And God poured upon him all the punishment, all the wrath that we deserved. So that the debt is perfectly satisfied. Perfectly. Now when we come to God by faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, Jesus takes our sin and we get his righteousness, his goodness. That's quite a deal, isn't it? And it's the same gospel. Jew or Gentile. Rich or poor. Smart or not so smart, it's all the same. Friends, have you received that gospel? If you haven't, you need to this morning. Maybe there's somebody here, you you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ, you haven't trusted in that gospel, you're still looking to save yourself. Maybe that's why you're here this morning. You're trying to store up brownie points before God. You think that if you go to church enough, or if you go to church regular enough, that'll get you to heaven somehow. Friends, it won't. Your own works won't do it, but the work of Jesus Christ for you will. So if you haven't trusted in Jesus, if you haven't made that decision to stop trusting in yourself for salvation, then come this morning and trust in Jesus. But you know, for the rest of us, it really makes us excited too, doesn't it? Because every one of us has an all-purpose gospel. One gospel fits all. Everybody you meet the rest of the day today can be saved by this gospel. Everybody. Everybody you meet tomorrow, everybody. Doesn't matter what kind of context they come, where they're coming from, doesn't matter. This gospel is for them. And may God give you an opportunity to share that gospel with somebody else this coming week. Because they need to hear it. And God's appointed you to be the messenger.